Would you grab a Bible? Page 869. That's where we find Luke chapter 10. We're going to spend our time there for the next few minutes together. A week ago, last Friday, Pastor Micah and I uh, recorded an episode of our podcast with Alex Kukendall. She's the author of a book, Loving My Actual Neighbor. She's going to be here with us on our campus two weeks from today at 9.30, talking about simple ways to love your neighbor in everyday life. And uh, it's part of something that we're doing during this part of the year. It's May, bumping into our neighbors, cutting the grass, planting flowers, seeing the people that live across the street who we haven't seen you know, in nine months or something like that. And uh, it's part of something larger we're doing all year at Our Father, you know, re-engaging in our mission, helping ordinary people know head and heart and share extraordinary life in Jesus. So in the fall, we did a big event in the, uh, in the fellowship hall called uh, Listening to God, How to Read the Bible. You can find that stuff on our website. Really good stuff. And this part of the year, as we're transitioning into the summer, talking about sharing that life, with our neighbors. We'll have some time in the summer between the two services to share that inwardly as a family. Uh, Looking forward to that in June and July. Uh, But uh, 8.30, that was the time I had, or excuse me, 9.30, that was the time I had to be here for the episode that we were recording. Now, at 8.30, an hour before that, I had to be at our Uh, school where our kids go in our neighborhood and our son Jude who's in preschool now was there for his kindergarten open house very big deal for Jude and I knew it was going to be about an hour and I had a 10 minute drive to get from there to here to get here by 9 30 for the recording and so we arrived Jude gets a name tag they find us on the little check-in sheet Uh, he lines up with all the little future kindergartners and uh you know, you, we could tell pretty quickly, you know, who were the first-time parents who were having trouble with this, and the rest of us in the back who have older children who had done this before, who were like, see ya! <laughs> so Jude goes down the hall, and all the parents get a tour of the school with one of the fifth graders, and our son Adam's in third grade there. Now we kind of knew our way around. Tour takes about 45 minutes. I'm looking at my watch, going, okay, let's wrap this up. Get back to where we started, the entrance of the school. We kind of get dropped off by the fifth grader. And parents start filing in, and some of them are making small talk with each other. Some of them are looking at their phones. And after a few minutes tick by, I turned to Jackie and said, you know, I don't really feel like talking to anybody. I just kind of want to talk to you. Is that all right? She said, yeah, sure. So, Finally, I look around the room and something dawns on me. That the parents of the kids who will be in Jude's class, those are parents of kids who are going to be his friends. They might actually live in my neighborhood. And in fact, if history repeats itself, like was the case for our older son, these could very well be people who become my friends. And I started laughing at myself. Jackie says, what are you laughing at? And I said, well, I think it's really funny. Remember the thing I just told you about how I only wanted to talk to you and not to anybody else? Well, I can't wait to get out of here, you know, some, for some reason, because I want to go record a podcast about how I can love my actual neighbor and here I don't want to talk to the people who are my actual neighbors. 
What we have here in Luke is a great neighbor, the good Samaritan. And this may be a story that's familiar to you if you grew up in the church. It may be a story to you that's familiar if you didn't. I mean, we have nonprofit organizations named after this guy. There's a hospital on the north side of Denver called Good Samaritan Hospital. Uh, In fact, there's a law in all 50 states and in Washington, D.C. that protects people who step off of the sideline into harm's way to assist someone in their time of need. It protects them from liability. It's called the Good Samaritan Law. And how you read this familiar story makes a big difference. Because on the surface, the way it seems to read is to be a story about our Christian duty to love our neighbor. That's true. But I can't help but wonder if that's all we find here. Jesus wants us to ask, who are we in this story? And it may not be who you think. Let's take a look. Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 30. The first person that we meet is the man on the side of the road. It's on the screen. Let's take a look now. It says, Jesus replied to the lawyer, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Let's pause there. That's a distance of about 15 miles. Uh, It would take a number of hours to walk. It's about the time that would take if you left here at about noon and walked to downtown, you could catch a night game at Coors Field and be there in time for first pitch. If you really wanted to see the Rockies or if you really want to do what I want to do is go see the team that's playing the Rockies, usually the Cardinals. 15 miles, descent of about 3,400 feet, downhill. And he fell among robbers. This, these details are important. Who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. What does that tell us about the man in the story that Jesus tells? It means he's probably unconscious, half dead, can't talk, which means if you approach him, you can't tell where he's from because you can't hear his accent. And he's not wearing clothes, so you can't tell by his dress, his nationality. You can't tell where he's from by the way that he looks or the way that he sounds. Then next, this happens. Take a look. It says a priest approached him. He was going down the road. That description is going to be important later. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Here's what we don't know that the people around Jesus would know. The priests are members of the upper class, and then as a member of the upper class, that means you don't walk, you ride. Probably a donkey. And as he gets close, he passes by on the other side. Why? Is he because maybe he's in a hurry? As far as he knows, because he can't get close enough to tell this man is already dead. And if he gets too close and the man is dead, that means for the priest, he's ceremonially unclean. Why does that matter? Because that means he can't go to work for two weeks. He's got to sit outside the gates. That means no income for his family. And on top of that, because he's got to hang out with the people in the lower class who are also unclean for those two weeks, that means he brings shame and on his family in a shame and honor culture where your family and your family's reputation were everything. He's got a lot to lose. But he goes by on the other side. That's the priest. Then there's the Levite. Next verse, verse 32. We might say that the Levite works in the same building as the priest, but on a different floor. 
He's half a rung down on the social ladder, and he doesn't ride the Levite walks. And his bubble is smaller. He can get within six feet, close enough to tell. It says that he came to the place, and he too passes by on the other side. Why? Maybe he's thinking, look, I don't have an animal to put him on. I've got to carry him myself. And it's going to take us hours and hours and hours longer than it would take me on foot if I were going by myself. And if it takes us too long, it's going to become night. If it becomes night, I put myself at risk to suffer the same fate that this man who I'm trying to rescue suffered. I don't have the strength. And I can put my own health, my life in jeopardy too. So he too chooses to pass by on the other side. Priest, the Levite, third, the Good Samaritan. It says, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. You see the progression? Priest goes by on the road. The Levite comes to the place. The Samaritan comes to the man. And when he saw him, he had compassion. It's a word we throw around in English pretty easily. The Greek word here is the word splagnizomai. It comes from the noun splagnon, which means guts or bowels. Splagnizomai. You can't say that without clenching your abs. Would you say that? Splagnizomai. Jesus has compassion on this man in the depths of his soul. Every other place it's used in the New Testament, it's also used to describe the feeling, the compassion, the empathy, how Jesus is moved when he sees someone in need and he helps them and heals them. Splagnizomai. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, oil to clean, wine to disinfect. Let's keep reading. And then it says, then he set him on his own animal. Why is that detail important? Two reasons. One, Jesus is showing us that the good Samaritan is willing to do what the priest refused to do. And for this reason too, that in first century Semitic culture and in 21st century Semitic culture today, if you were the master, you rode, and if you were the servant, you walked. What do we find here? He puts this man on his donkey. He takes the form of a servant and he leads the animal himself. And he takes him to an inn. Okay, an inn. They stay the night. The next morning, they leave. Why is that significant? It's because the good Samaritan can't rename can't remain anonymous. He's, he puts his name on the ledger. Keep in mind at this time, Samaritans and Jews had been enemies for centuries. Uh, the Samaritans had built a place of worship north of Jerusalem uh, and on a mountain. Uh, the historian Josephus tells us that a couple years before this took place, during the lifetime of Jesus, during one of the Passover celebrations, that the Samaritans came to the temple and they threw human bones in the courtyard. I mean, both of these things, among a number of other conflicts over centuries, had created a deep conflict and rift between these two groups of people. 
And so when the Samaritan puts his name on the ledger, when they stand the night, he can't remain anonymous. And that means that he's putting himself at risk because if the family were to come by, they would assume that it could be very well likely that the Samaritan himself was guilty of beating and robbing and leaving this man half dead. He puts himself at risk of retaliation. And then he writes a blank check. Here's for last night and anything else, whatever more you spend, I will repay you. And then he promises to return. Okay. The hearers around Jesus would be shocked that the hero in this story is a Samaritan. If it should have been anyone, it should have been a Jewish person caring for the Samaritan, maybe, probably not even that. But Jesus flips the tables and says, no, it's the Samaritan, it's your enemy who's caring for you. Okay, class. What's the lesson here? How do you read it? What does it mean? A couple things. Slow down? Yeah, I think so. I mean, notice the people around us because our lives are way too fast. And be generous. Give sacrificially to the people around us. Absolutely. Because our default mode is to give of ourselves, whether it's our time, our money, whatever it is, uh, to make space on our schedule just enough to the place that we are comfortable, but not beyond that invisible line that stretches us outside our comfort zone. For that matter, is that what Jesus is saying, get outside your comfort zone? And I think so too. I mean, surround yourself not just with people who are like you, who agree with you, but people who aren't like you, who don't agree with you. In other words, be the good Samaritan. And after all, that's the way Jesus ends this parable and says, go and do likewise. Is that all we see here? Because we don't need Jesus to tell us to be a better person. You don't have to be a Christian to know that. I mean, if you were honest with your heart, you know that you're not the person you should be. And by the way, if you think you are a great Samaritan and you've got this nailed, let me tell you, I don't think this is the place for you. This isn't a place for perfect people. This is a place for ordinary people. Do you notice what happens right before Jesus tells this parable? They're not talking about how to live, how to be better versions of ourselves. They're not talking about how to live. They're talking about how to be saved. This lawyer, not an expert in civil law, but an expert in the spiritual law, the law of Moses and the Torah, approaches Jesus with this question, and he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Because that is the question that makes all the difference. I think it's so easy for us to turn the scriptures into a series of moral stories and lessons that teach us how to be a better person. Let's take Abraham. You know, be like Abraham. He trusted God. He obeyed. 
He went way outside his comfort zone. God told him to leave his homeland and to go to a place he had never seen before. Look how far he went. Look how much he did. He was willing to give up the most precious things in his life. Be like that, Abraham. Don't be like Abraham, who when he and his wife Sarah went to Egypt, told the people at the border checkpoint that Sarah was his sister, not his wife. Which one is it? Here's another. Be like David. Be like David, who trusted God, who had great faith, who slayed the giants, Goliath, not with a sword, but with a sling and a stone. Don't be like David. Don't be like David, who as king used his power against his own people, who had one of his generals killed and slept with his wife, who bore his child. Which one is it? How do you read it? Is the question that makes all the difference. Do you notice that their conversation is not how to live? It's not how to fulfill the law like it's a list of requirements. The lawyer's looking for a loophole. I think it's easy for us to read the text today in the very same way and to say, look, are there plenty of scriptures that tell us how to be good people? And look, we should give to the people who are in need. The Bible says so, but only if they deserve it and only if they're responsible enough to earn it too. So I'll give on my terms, whatever that really means, but I'll only give enough so that I can maintain a comfortable life. Oops. Loophole. So then there's the other response. The one on this side that says, look, the Bible says we should be generous to people who are in need and we should give of ourselves. Look at all the advantages and the privileges and the opportunities that you have that other people don't have. Are you grateful enough for the things that you have? We've got a responsibility to pay for social programs and to vote for the right people. And that's how we'll do our duty as Christian people to make a difference in the world. Do you see that they are two different versions of the very same thing? Giving out of guilt. And Jesus doesn't take either side. Because for Jesus, it's not a matter of duty at all. How do we move? beyond duty to delight so that our time and our resources and, and loving our neighbors isn't a have to but a want to it all depends on how you read it are you the priest are you the Levite maybe are you the Samaritan really The question is not, who are you in this story? The question is, who is Jesus? Who writes himself into this story? Who comes to the place where you are? Helpless, abandoned, left for dead by the evil one and who has compassion on you 
who feels your pain, who hears your cry, the one who became a servant, who made himself nothing, the one who pays a price for all your debts. As I've said already, most of us, most of the time, will only commit our time, our money, and our energy so long as it keeps us comfortable. But by the cross, the great Samaritan says, I didn't, I didn't come for any of that because I'm committed to you. I came at the cost of my comfort. I came not at the risk of my life, but at the cost of it. And you can't love me with your whole heart and mind and soul and strength if you tried. So I will give myself, my life, and I will pour out upon the cross my life, my blood, my soul, my strength for you because you are my delight. And because you are my delight, and because I'm sovereign and I know all things, I know that you're going to sin against me again and again and again. But I've already paid your debt. Look at my wounds. I'm alive. I'm risen. And one day I will return to destroy the evil one and end his lies and the pain and the suffering that he has caused in your life and in all of creation. I will get rid of him and all pain and brokenness once and for all. Because I'm alive and I'm risen. You see, my friends, if you're like anyone in this story, you're not the Samaritan. If you're like anyone in this story, you're the man on the road. And Jesus, the great Samaritan, the ultimate hero, writes himself into your story today. He comes near to serve you at his table to cleanse you with his blood and to bind your wounds, to forgive your sin and to make you by his strength more in him than you could ever be on your own. And if you see him, the ultimate neighbor, slowing down, seeing, serving you, it will make you a neighbor too a good neighbor for those who God has put on your way today. Finally, okay. What does that look like? Story so familiar. How do we live it out? How, how can we live as God's people today? I, I think it does mean slowing down because our lives are way too fast. I think it means seeing the people who God has put in our way, not simply going somewhere else or being someone else, but being where God has put you in the vocations that you have. Seeing them to have compassion on them and trusting that when you're moving beyond your comfort zone, that God has given you his gift and put you in the place where you are for his purpose. On Friday, I went to lunch with Pastor Abel and Philip Winkler, our congregational president, wrapping up some stuff before Pastor Abel starts his sabbatical in about 10 days and uh, preparing for a new budget cycle as our ministry begins, new ministry year in July. And we went to a place that we go to often, around the corner from here. Servers know us, we know them, and our server came and took our order, and I noticed that she was wearing a chain around her neck with a pendant with somebody's name on it. I thought, huh, that's interesting. And as we were preparing to leave, leave, I said, hey, I see you're wearing a heart with someone's name on it. Can you tell me about that? And she said, yeah. And she got sad. And she said, this is the name of my dog. I just had to put him down about a week ago. 
and he's been my best friend for a long time. And she said, wait right here. And she left the table, and she came back right away with her phone, and she had a picture that was two pictures. A picture on one side was her dog over her shoulder when it was just a little puppy, and next to it was a picture of her dog over her other shoulder in its old age. And then Pastor Abel and Philip pulled out their phones, and then were showing each other, all of them were showing their dogs. I felt like there was this little club that I wasn't a part of. <laughs> I thought, maybe I need to get a dog or something. <laughs> and as she walked away, she said, you know, I'm really glad that he got to see the best side of me in the last few years of his life. I don't know what she meant by that. But I do know I can't wait to go back and ask. Somebody who wears that, who says that, says that and wears that, my guess would be because they want to be seen and known. I didn't ask about the thing that she was wearing because I'm a pastor. I asked that because I'm a person. Let's be the kind of neighbors who slow down and see the people who God has already put on our way. To live with compassion and to love people who are like us and people who aren't like us, who agree with us and people who don't. Not out of duty, but out of delight because the one Jesus Christ who delights in us. In the name of Jesus, amen.